Hello, friends, and welcome to Into the Word, a radio and online program committed to reading, loving, and living the whole counsel of God. Lord willing, our intention is to go verse by verse and chapter by chapter through the entire Bible. Here to continue that journey is our Bible teacher at Into the Word, Pastor Paul Carter. Your word is a lamp unto my feet. If you have your Bible with you, I'd love for you to open it now to Leviticus chapter 3. The instructions in this chapter deal with the matter of peace offerings. Now, the word peace in Hebrew, shalom, means more than it typically means in English. Gordon Wenham says here, Peace in Hebrew means more than the absence of war. True peace means health, prosperity, and peace with God. Closed quote. So this offering is not about salvation or reconciliation to God. That was the purpose of the burnt offering. This is something different. This is something over and above. In fact, you'll notice that these offerings were laid on top of the burnt offerings. You'll see that in verse 5. The symbolism there is hard to miss. These are offerings that can only be offered because we are already justified in the eyes of the Lord. So we're dealing with the desire of the worshiper to draw nearer to the God of their salvation. And that is a good and noble desire in both the Old and New Testaments. James, the brother of the Lord, said, Draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. That's James 4, 8. So that's what we're talking about here. The desire of reconciled people to live as more than non-combatants with God. They want more than that. They desire intimacy, access, and blessing. Hear now the word of the Lord, beginning at verse 1. If his offering is a sacrifice of peace offering, if he offers an animal from the herd, male or female, he shall offer it without blemish before the Lord. Let's just quickly note that unlike with the burnt offering, the animal used may be either male or female, but like the burnt offering, it must be without blemish. So it appears that an effort is being made to relate and distinguish this offering from the burnt offering. This is a covenant sacrifice but it is not simply a repetition of the burnt offering, which had to do with atonement and reconciliation. This is on top of that. This is related to that, but this is not identical to that. Verse 2, And he shall lay his hand on the head of his offering and kill it at the entrance of the tent of meeting. And Aaron's sons, the priests, shall throw the blood against the sides of the altar. And from the sacrifice of the peace offering as a food offering to the Lord, He shall offer the fat covering the entrails and all the fat that is on the entrails and the two kidneys with the fat that is on them at the loins and the long lobe of the liver that he shall remove with the kidneys. Then Aaron's sons shall burn it on the altar on top of the burnt offering, which is on the wood on the fire. It is a food offering with a pleasing aroma to the Lord. Now, let's notice, first of all, that this sacrifice, like the burnt offering, begins with a gesture of identification and faith. The worshiper lays his hand on the head of his offering. Andrew Bonner says here, The offerer's hand resting on the head of the animal was equivalent to his pointing to Christ as the source of his blessings. So, These are rituals of faith. That's the main idea. We must be careful as 21st century people not to despise all ritual and liturgy. The Bible does not uniformly condemn ritual. 
What it condemns is dead ritual and hypocritical ritual. If there's no true faith and if there is no accompanying obedience, then better not to make any sacrifice at all. We have plenty of passages in the Bible making that point. Plenty of passages in the Old Testament making that point. But evidently, ritual with faith and in sincerity is pleasing and acceptable to God. That's why the paragraph above ends with the words, a pleasing aroma to the Lord. Done in faith, in the context of the covenant, this was pleasing to the Lord. Remember, this is biblical faith 101. The whole purpose of Leviticus was to teach people the rudiments of covenant faith and worship. So ritual is a very important part of that, just like it was in kindergarten class for you. Kindergarten classes are the most ritualistic places on planet Earth. There are songs to sing when we wash our hands or clean up our blocks. There is a liturgy around snack time and break time and bathroom time. There are magic words and required phrases. Not because the teacher thinks that you're going to carry on with these rituals for the rest of your life. In fact, your friends will think you're crazy if you do. But because through these rituals, you're going to learn the basic structure, courtesies, and habits of successful life. So it is here. The worshiper is learning about substitution and identification and personal investment. These fundamental concepts are the building blocks of all true biblical religion. Now, at verse 3, the ritual itself begins to diverge from the ritual associated with the burnt offering. In the burnt offering, by definition, everything that is there is offered up to the Lord. The whole animal is burnt up. But here in verse 3, we discover that in this offering, only select parts are burnt up. The fat parts, the inner parts, the long lobe of the liver and the kidneys. Now, as to why these parts in particular should be offered to God, the New International Commentary on the Old Testament is very helpful here. It says, by giving the fat, the worshiper was giving the best of the animal. And insofar as the animal was thought to represent the man, the worshiper showed he was giving God the best part of his life, closed quote. And then again, a little further down, the kidneys and entrails are referred to in the New Testament as the seat of the emotions, just as in English we talk of the heart, closed quote. So putting that all together, by offering these parts of the animal, the worshiper was saying, I give you my best and I give you my all. I offer the deepest and truest parts of who I am to you as an act of sacrifice and devotion. This is the Old Testament equivalent of Romans 12.1. I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual service of worship. So give your whole life to God. Give your whole self to God, Paul says, in view of the mercy and kindness that he has shown to you. Well, that's exactly what the Old Testament worshiper was doing here. And notice again that these offerings of consecration, thanksgiving, and dedication are made on top of the burned offering. That's in verse 5. Only as a saved person, only as a person who has been shown mercy, as Paul says in Romans 12.1, can we draw near in this sort of approach to God. Andrew Bonner again says here, our daily acts of communion with God, our daily praise, our daily thanksgiving must be founded afresh on the work of Jesus. Close quote. Verse 6. If his offering for a sacrifice of peace offering to the Lord is an animal from the flock, male or female, 
he shall offer it without blemish. If he offers a lamb for his offering, then he shall offer it before the Lord, lay his hand on the head of his offering, and kill it in front of the tent of meeting. And Aaron's sons shall throw its blood against the sides of the altar. Then from the sacrifice of the peace offering, he shall offer as a food offering to the Lord its fat. He shall remove the whole fat tail, cut off close to the backbone, and the fat that covers the entrails, and all the fat that is on the entrails, and the two kidneys with the fat that is on them, at the loins, and the long lobe of the liver that he shall remove from the kidneys. And the priest shall burn it on the altar as a food offering to the Lord. So as with the burnt offering, as with the cereal offering, so here with the peace offering. In each case, there are three different options available to the worshiper based on his economic capacity. This in itself should remind us that it is never about the value of the gift, but it is about the cost to the giver. Giving should be equally expensive to all worshipers, not in real terms, but in relative terms. And that's why I think we have to be careful sometimes about our use of fixed wooden numbers when it comes to tithing and giving as believers. There were actually three tithes in the Old Testament, uh, two given every year and then one given every third year. So the true Old Testament tithe rate was closer to 23% than 10%. But regardless, the situation in the New Testament church is different than it was in the Old. In the Old Testament, the church and the state were one and the same, whereas in the New Testament, the church exists inside of various other states and nations all around the world. So there is a principle of tithing, but it will have to be applied with some sensitivity to the reality of our new situation. What we're seeing here is the wisdom of proportionate giving. To be perfectly honest with you, giving 10% of your gross income would hardly be a stretch for some people. They could easily push that up to 15% or 20% before it would cost them what 10% would cost a person making 30 or 40 or $50,000 a year. The idea is that worship should be expensive relative to one's wealth and economic standing. And I think that is the concept we ought to be very eager to retain in the church. Now, in this particular paragraph, what we're seeing is the middle-class offering, a lamb from the flock. The process is identical regardless. Uh, once again, the worshiper brings the animal. He lays his hand upon the head of the animal. Presumably, prayers would be spoken. Of course, later in Israelite history, a psalm would have been read. Perhaps there would have been an opportunity for the worshiper to explain the particular reason he was bringing this offering. He might say that he'd come to thank God for the safe delivery of a child. Or he might say that he had just fulfilled a vow. Or he might say that he's happy and glad and joyful in the Lord and wanting to express that. Whatever the reason, he would speak it, he would pray, and then he would kill the animal and the priest would splash the blood over the altar. The animal would then be skinned and cut up into its various pieces. As with the offering from the herd, only certain portions, the inner, the rich, and the fat, would be placed on top of the burnt offering. Special mention is made here of the tail of the sheep. Apparently, this particular breed of sheep had very large tails, which were highly prized by the people in the region. R.K. Harrison says here, In mature animals, the fatty tail can weigh between 22 and 33 kilograms. And from very early times, it was esteemed as a delicacy. So, again, this represents giving God our very best. 
Even if you can't afford an ox like your rich neighbor, you can still give God the very best of what you have. That's the idea. Verse 12, if his offering is a goat, then he shall offer it before the Lord and lay his hand on its head and kill it in front of the tent of meeting. And the sons of Aaron shall throw its blood against the sides of the altar. Then he shall offer from it as his offering for a food offering to the Lord, the fat covering the entrails and all the fat that is on the entrails and the two kidneys with the fat that is on them at the loins and the long lobe of the liver that he shall remove with the kidneys. And the priest shall burn them on the altar as a food offering with a pleasing aroma. All fat is the Lord's. It shall be a statute forever throughout your generations in all your dwelling places that you eat neither fat nor blood. The goat here is the equivalent of the dove or the pigeon offering in chapter 1. This would be the option available to the person of meager means. God does not esteem our offerings based on their financial value. Rather, he looks at the heart behind. Just like the widow and her offering of two copper coins in Mark 12, God looks at what you keep, not at what you give. He looks at what it says about your faith and your heart. God doesn't need your money, but he does read your gestures. So again, we notice that there is always an interest in making all aspects of worship available to all classes of people in terms of their economic standing. That's a principle that is certainly worth retaining in the church. The process here is the same as in the previous two instances. The inner, the rich, and the fat parts are offered to God, and the skin and certain other portions, the breast and the right thigh, were given to the priest as part of his tribute and maintenance. We learn about those details in chapter 7. So part went to God, part went to the priest, and a portion was returned to the worshiper so that he could eat and celebrate with his friends and family. Deuteronomy 12, 7 talks about that. It says, And there you shall eat before the Lord your God, and you shall rejoice, you and your households, and all that you undertake, in which the Lord your God has blessed you. So this would have been a very special occasion. Most Israelites did not eat a great deal of meat in their daily diet. So eating meat became associated with worship. Worship was about drawing near to God and to one another. It was about joy and gladness in the presence of the Lord. Now, interestingly, many commentators see a link between the peace offering and the Lord's Supper. Eating the Lord's Supper does not make anyone saved. In fact, you shouldn't eat the Lord's Supper unless you are saved. So it is an act of worship that is built upon and that assumes your status as part of the redeemed community. And it is a meal we share with God, as it were, and with one another. And so Gordon Wenham points out helpfully here, the Lord's Supper should therefore be, like the peace offering, at once a solemn and joyful occasion. Solemn because no human being can lightheartedly enter God's presence and pledge to keep his laws. Joyful because God's grace and his promise exceed all that we can ask or think in this life and the next. That is well and helpfully said. We are joyful in the presence of God, but not recklessly so. We must always remember that God is there, and so certain boundaries must be observed. We see that in verse 17. The text ends with some instructions about what may and may not be eaten. It shall be a statute forever throughout your generations in all your dwelling places that you eat neither fat nor blood. To eat those things would be to take the parts that were designated unto God, the ritual parts. The blood was associated with atonement according to Leviticus 17.11, and the fat represented the best, 
the portion that was given unto God. So as long as the sacrificial system was in place, these parts of the animal were forbidden to the individual Israelite. And this applied even in the home, meaning it was not just a regulation for the festival meal that accompanied the particular sacrifice. It applied to every meal that an Old Testament worshiper would eat, even in their own homes. And this had the effect of extending the mood and mindset of worship beyond the actual momentary event. Every time you drain the blood and cut away the fat, you would be reminded that you are never not a worshiper of the Lord. Everything you have, you have because of his mercy and kindness. Thanks be to God. Thank you, friends, for listening to another episode of Into the Word. If you're interested in additional resources or previous episodes and series, you can find those at intotheword.ca. You can also connect with Pastor Paul and other Bible readers on the Into the Word Facebook page. Just type Into the Word into the search bar. If you'd like to contribute to this listener-supported program, go to the website and click the Give bar in the top right corner. Once again, that's intotheword.ca. We hope to see you again real soon right here for another episode of Into the Word. Thank you.